Christ is our firm foundation. Amen? There is no other foundation. <laughs> At least no foundation that satisfies us, right? Good morning, family. It is so great to be with you all today. And as Gary said, <laughs> the mass of people from that section, a lot from that section are gone as well. Uh, as they are at camp, I was able to be out there a little bit on Thursday, and it is a special place, and those kids are exactly where they need to be. And um, so just keep praying that God moves in their hearts, because he already has been, and um, it's, it's just been really beautiful being out there with him. And I want to welcome all of our visitors, anybody who's joining us today for the first time or first few times. Uh, thank you for being here. If you have any questions about Fourth Avenue, you want to get to know more about this church, then I would love to answer any questions. We would love to answer any questions that you have about the church, and we'd love to love your family. As many of you know, I am a really big Kansas City Chiefs fan. And as you know, we also happen to be the best team in the NFL. And also, as you know, we have the best quarterback in the NFL. And if you'd have told me six years ago that I'd be able to say those words, I would have laughed. There is no way on earth that the mediocre, terrible Kansas City Chiefs would ever be that way. But we live in a world today where there are bandwagon Kansas City Chiefs fans. And that is just a shocker to me. And I'll tell you one of the most interesting phenomena in all of sports are bandwagon fans. In case you don't know what that is, the bandwagon effect, it can be defined as the tendency people have to adopt certain behaviors, styles, attitudes, just because other people are doing it. If something is popular or successful, humans have this tendency to want to be associated with it, to be a part of it. So for sports, that looks like people who will so quickly move allegiances of teams whenever a really good player goes to a different team or a super team is created or a team just wins a championship, right? We want to be associated with the winning side. Or like iPhones, for example. They have gained so much popularity lately that they don't even have to innovate anymore. Like you see so many of these other phone companies, they're like, and now we have it folding. We have a folding touchscreen. And Apple's like, all right, here's the next iPhone. Only this time, it's yellow. And we're going to be suckers and buy it anyway, <laughs> right? Or looking at style. Whenever I was growing up, the mullet was a big no-no. You would get made fun of hard for that. But now, in today's world, Gen Z is reclaiming the glory of the 80s mullet. And it is now a popular thing in society, and it's gaining more traction because it's more and more popular. We are highly influenced by the pressure and the norms of our culture. And as an idea or belief increases in popularity, people are more and more likely to adopt it. And whenever it seems like everybody is doing something, there is incredible pressure to conform to that idea. And this could be because it's easier to go with the flow, it's easier to go with the masses. It helps give a bigger sense of belonging, knowing that more people agree with you than not. It could be a desire to be seen as being on the winning side and this pressure to conform and go with the masses, that was a legitimate threat in the early church. But the way that they responded was astounding. We're going to continue our series, Church on Fire, looking at how spirit-empowered people of God took the good news of Jesus and spread it to the world. 
And where we're at in the story so far, we've read of the church gaining more and more traction. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. And the religious authorities are totally freaked out about this. They've told the crowds to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they kept trying to find ways to silence this movement, but the apostles continued on. They kept healing people. They kept on preaching, and more and more people were coming to know Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Acts 5. The religious authorities arrested some apostles and put them into prison. And while they were in jail, an angel of the Lord came in and broke them out of jail and commissioned them to go and preach in the temple courts. So they're in the temple courts again, sharing the good news of Jesus, and the authorities come into the jail, and to their surprise, the apostles are not there. (laughs) Where did they go? And they find them that they're out in the open again, preaching this good news of Jesus. And we're going to pick up uh, whenever the high priests bring them back in to question them in verse 28. It says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. So Peter is not letting go of that one (laughs) for them. But God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Furious because Peter keeps blaming them for the death of Jesus, and then he's saying, you do not have the Holy Spirit because you are not obeying Jesus. They're pretty mad about that. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little bit. And when he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So Gamaliel, a Pharisee, brings up previous instances of revolt, of people having a lot of sway over a group of people, but the moment that that person died, it just sort of dissipated. The followers scattered, the movement stopped. And Gamaliel is saying, hey, this might be one of those things. Like, if, if these people end up dying off since Jesus died off, then it might just fizzle out. But if it's not, there's a good chance it's a movement of God. <laughs> and we probably shouldn't be fighting against that. And that speech in verse 40, it says it persuaded them, so they don't ultimately kill them. And they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And floggings like this were super intense, were very, very severe. It was most likely 39 lashes, and the idea behind that is they're not supposed to go past 40. And there's a law, I think, in Deuteronomy that that talks about that, but they're not supposed to go past 
40 total lashes, so the standard is 39. But it's, it's pretty severe. And they ordered them to stop talking about Jesus. And I'll tell you, when I read this next verse, I get chills. The apostles left the Sanhedrin <laughs> rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Or in other words, all of those threats were in vain, and they preached all the more loudly. But verse 41 to me is just amazing. Because for us, whenever we receive any level of criticism, if someone ever says anything evil about us, we have several responses we can go with. We might be defensive about it. We might have our feelings hurt pretty bad about it and really sulk a little bit. And whenever things get tough, we might become a little less bold, a little more shy, or perhaps more apathetic and stopping caring about whatever that thing was. But that's not the reaction here. It says, they left rejoicing after an intense flogging, for they had been counted worthy to suffer like Jesus. This gives you a little window into the disciples' attitudes of the time. There was such a strong spirit of defiance in the early church. The hope for the authorities was after a severe punishment like this, the apostles were not going to just keep on going and, and preaching this message. They thought that they would be discouraged to do that, or else they're going to receive that again. But if anything, it seems like the flogging added fuel to their fire. And in 1 Peter, you can hear more of Peter's attitude and his ability to rejoice in sufferings. In 1 Peter 4, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. As Christians, we shouldn't be shocked that hardship comes in our life. In fact, we should rejoice when it does come. It's hard to say those words. It's hard to really live those words. And this is a sort of perspective shift from whenever something bad happens in our life. Like the moment I don't get exactly what I want from God, I feel like I'm quick to start asking questions. Why, God? Why did this happen to me? Why are you letting me go through this? We normally don't see our sufferings as something to rejoice in or something that helps us connect with Jesus. But if we face persecution in the name of Jesus specifically, we should feel at peace because that is an evidence that the Spirit of God is living within us. It's also an evidence that we are bearing the name of Christ and we are joining in his sufferings. And that desire to follow Christ even to the point of persecution was just so strong in the early church. And one of the biggest reasons that I am a Christian is actually the testimony of the early church and their devotion to Christ over everything. And we don't just see that in the Bible. I'm talking like the first few centuries 
of the early church. I mean, it is powerful stuff. And if you're not very familiar with church history, I highly recommend you guys read up on some church history and some of the saints that have come before us. Because some of the suffering that they endured and their attitudes, I mean, it is just inspiring, inspiring, powerful stuff. And we're cheating ourselves if we don't know their stories. But you don't rejoice in sufferings unless you are absolutely convinced about the cause that you're serving. And they were totally convinced. But it's not just the fact that the early church was so quick to give up their lives for Jesus. It's also the way in which they did give up their life. The way in which they lived their life. Forgiving their enemies, loving their enemies as they are being killed by their enemies. It's so moving to me. I think about in Acts a few chapters later, the stoning of Stephen. He is preaching to this Jewish crowd and again is saying, you're guilty of killing Jesus and you're not obeying the law because the law is pointing to Jesus. And his crowd didn't like that and they ultimately stoned him. And he became the first Christian martyr. But as he was dying, he was praying for the Lord to receive his spirit and praying that he does not hold this sin against them. That's powerful. There's something special about that. And though Stephen was the first Christian martyr, he certainly was not the last. It's thought that every apostle apart from John was killed because of their faith. In the first century, as Christianity started gaining more of a following, the Roman Empire felt threatened by them. And really ramping up during the time of Nero, Christians began being persecuted heavily. Being crucified and lit on fire to light the roads at night. Being thrown into gladiatorial games to die to wild beasts or the sword. I mean, it was extremely evil and extremely brutal. And even with these threats, the early... The early church stood up to the empire and said, come what may. One such Christian that was thrown into the gladiatorial games to die, his name is Ignatius of Antioch. He died about in the early second century, but there's this quote of him right before his death that is so powerful. He says, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray that they would be found eager to rush at me. And I will also entice them to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear they have not touched. If they are unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things visible or invisible prevent me from attaining to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocation of bones let cutting off of limbs, let shatterings of the whole body, let all the evil torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Whoo! That's, that's powerful stuff. And I wonder how many of us can pray that prayer. That might be the most come what may quote I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> I also think about the story of Perpetua who was a 22-year-old Roman noblewoman who was recently married and recently a mother. She converted to Christianity at the beginning of the third century, and she was imprisoned and separated from her baby because of her belief 
in Jesus. And she was being begged, absolutely begged by her father to renounce Jesus. Do not stick with him. Stay alive for your child. And there's this famous quote where she is talking to her father. She says, neither can I call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. And she was able to breastfeed her baby a little bit while she was in prison and she saw it as a grace from God to be able to have that time with her baby. But ultimately, her and a female slave who was turned Christian as well and was also a recent mother and a few other Christian converts, they were all thrown into the gladiatorial games and killed. How powerful of a story is this? But this level of persecution at the same time, it's just grotesque. Like it's so awful. And it makes you wonder, what did they do to actually deserve this? What on earth did they deserve? Why, why did they deserve going into the gladiatorial games and dying like this or being crucified or whatever else? There is a letter that was dated sometime in the mid-second century that talks about why Christians were being killed. And again, this is so powerful. We don't know who wrote it. Um, we know who its um, audience is, at least. We know the name of the person that's being written to, but we don't know anything really about the context. But it, this... From this letter, it says this, Christians love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evilly spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. I feel like I could end my sermon here and just say live like that. But the witness in the lives of the early church, I mean, it's so powerful, right? Though they lived for goodness in a radical way, loving the ones who were hating them, honoring those that dishonored them, really, they were hated for no other reason than their devotion and following of Jesus. And though they faced persecution, they made Jesus the Lord of their lives, and they lived with that come-what-may attitude. And because of their commitment to Jesus and their commitment to radical love, the church exploded in growth in this time because our souls ache to know the divine love of Jesus. And watching individuals die with such love for their enemies as they are dying was such a compelling thing for those who witnessed it because they wanted to experience how on earth could you die with that amount of confidence? How could you die with that much love for those who are killing you? And this is all still the same way today. In many parts of the world today, Christianity is heavily persecuted. And yet in those places, Christianity continues to thrive. One such example of this is North Korea. So this map here, shows some of the most dangerous places to be a Christian in the world. 
and the ones that are darker red are like the highest danger, pretty severe areas. And number one on that list, on the far top right of that uh, map, is North Korea. It is the worst place for Christians to live in the world today. It's estimated that as we speak, there are somewhere between 50,000 and 70,000 Christians that are currently in prison camps, where they are being tortured, where they are living in awful conditions, where they are being trafficked, and many of them are being killed just because of their faith. One incident reported from there was there was an underground church that was found out and the government went in and killed all of them on the spot. And then for their families, they took them into prison camps afterwards. But even in spite of all that, even in spite of that widespread persecution, the church continues to grow there. And I'll tell you what, my brothers and sisters in North Korea, they are my heroes. They are committed to Jesus even though the government is persecuting them severely. It's hard to get any legitimate numbers from North Korea about Christianity, but from refugees and people who were able to escape the persecution there, they have been talking about how the church is still growing and there are so many networks of churches that the government doesn't know about. God is still moving. God is still working. And the best we can guess with numbers, in 2002, the number of Christians there was somewhere around 12 to 30,000. But it's estimated there today to be somewhere between 200 and 400,000. And reading this, I, I think of uh, Justin Martyr, and his last name is not Martyr. He's, that was a title given to him because he was killed as well. He was a Christian leader that lived in the second century. He said this. Now, it is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus over all the world. For it is plain that though beheaded, crucified, thrown to wild beasts, chains and fire, and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. Instead, the more such things happen, the more others in even larger numbers become faithful and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. For if someone were to cut away the fruit-bearing parts of a vine, it would grow up again and yield other branches, flourishing and fruitful. Even so, the same thing happens with us. The kingdom of God is not threatened by anything. In fact, the times of greatest persecution in history have also been some of the times of greatest flourishing for the church. And to quote Gamaliel from what we read in Acts today, if a movement of, is of God, it cannot be stopped. Empires, nations, governments, and different points in history have all tried to silence Christianity, but it has only made it grow stronger because God will not be stopped. Sometimes I think we don't believe that. Sometimes I think we don't act like that is true. There is so much fear-based rhetoric from Christians in the media today. Stuff in news or books or podcasts that are intentionally trying to raise the level of urgency in your hearts. That if we don't get these people out of office and replace them with these ones, we're in trouble. That people with these certain ideologies or beliefs are the greatest threat to our country or the church. And I think that fear makes us start antagonizing people on the other side. Removing the humanity in other people. To take to Facebook and start name-calling the other side. I pray that that's not us, church. 
I, w- I want to share with you some of the words of Peter once again and how we deal with threats to our faith. 1 Peter 3, he says, Do not fear the threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, meaning nothing else in your life, even the good things in life, are as important as Jesus. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Be prepared to talk about Jesus all the time with everybody. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And though many want us to be afraid because it helps their ratings, frankly, we shouldn't fear any threats, right? Because we have a God that can't be stopped. But we should always be prepared to share the good news of Jesus, or in other words, share the truth with people, but key words here, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. We should speak the truth, but do it with kindness, with value in the other people, not to villainize them, not to feel threatened when they don't believe everything that we do. Why? Because God cannot be stopped. Church, even if Christianity keeps shrinking in this country, Even if we lost our freedom as a church to meet freely, and to be clear, I don't want that to happen. I am grateful that we live in a country where we have the freedom to come here without persecution, without the deep fear for our lives, right? And I pray that that continues. But even should that fall, it's not gonna stop the movement or the kingdom of God. And part of me wonders, if there was increased persecution here, would it help Christianity boom and thrive? Because Christians thrive in times of persecution whenever we are not the religion of the state. Because there have been times in history and there are some serious problems whenever a religion becomes the religion of a state. Oftentimes, those of that particular religion become the persecutors. But another problem that it creates is an increasing likelihood of nominal religion. And what I mean by nominal is existing in name only that everybody in the culture would consider themselves a Christian. But really, a lot of people don't know Jesus. And nominal Christianity, it creates this sense of luxury that we can really pick and choose what we want to believe about God to the exact kind of church that we want to be at. There are about a bazillion different flavors of church here in Nashville. If you want to find a place that lines up perfectly with your theology where everybody there thinks the same way about politics the same way you do, if you find that perfect church with the perfect worship and the best children's ministry and the tasty coffee in the lobby, right, you can keep hopping around to try to find that. I'm gonna guess you won't find that because if we found a church that matched every single one of our desires, we'd be a church of one. Where do you ever see a spirit like that in scripture? That pick and choose sort of mentality. And though Jesus' prayer for us was that of unity, whenever Christianity is in a place of power, we have a nasty tendency to want to divide over really petty things and get really comfortable. And I'll tell you, in North Korea, they're not asking the question, are you Baptist or are you Catholic or are you whatever? They're asking, are you with Jesus? 
And I think we need to be real with ourselves today. Are we Christians because of our unwavering devotion to Jesus over everything? Or are we bandwagon Christians? If the fire were to turn up here, if we really began being persecuted like Roman times, and I don't think we're anywhere close to that, would we be able to still confess Jesus as Lord? Or would we be the rocky soil and abandon Jesus the moment something got hard? I think we need to work through that question now so we can be ready for if that time may ever come. And I pray that that level of persecution does not come, just to be clear. But we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus truly worth losing everything for? And I'll tell you that Paul definitely thought so. He had quite the relationship with suffering. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, he's defending his authority as an apostle, and he recounts what he's gone through for Jesus. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger in, uh, from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul's gone through a lot, right? But in that same letter, in 2 Corinthians 4, listen to what he calls these things. He says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, light and momentary, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Would you be able to call being shipwrecked, being flogged, being close to death multiple times, a light and momentary trouble? Paul did. Why? Because he says, going through these things are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's seeing on the other side of this. He's like, whatever we have to go through to get to that, it's worth it. And I pray that we get that perspective as well. We can look at the hardships of our lives and kind of see them as small because the weight of what is coming is far superior. And though we suffer for doing good now, there's going to be a day when all suffering and all persecution and all mourning and all crying is gonna be done away with and not here anymore. We will be united by the love of Christ and all shall be well because God cannot be stopped. And this morning, I pray that for each of us, we are not just bandwagon Christians. I pray that more than our money and more than our comfort and our luxury, our reputation, our relationships, anything else that we might consider to be good in our lives, even over our own lives, in spite of whatever persecution may come, I pray that we choose Jesus over everything, come what may. And I pray that we are bursting, bursting at the seams to want to talk about Jesus and live boldly and with conviction, the same boldness and conviction of people like Ignatius and Perpetua, to live for sacrificial love, to live for turning the other cheek, to live for repaying evil with good, to live for speaking the truth in kindness and clinging to the cross of Christ with all our might. Because this world, our neighbors, are aching 
to know the divine love of Jesus. And we can show them that with our lives. And if those around us reject us and say bad things about us or want nothing to do with us or treat us differently because of Jesus, rejoice. Because you know that the Spirit of God is in you. Rejoice because you get to join in the suffering of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that we get to know you. We are thankful that you're a God who's with us in the fire and the flood. That you've experienced deep suffering and you join us in our sufferings. And Lord, I pray that we just get a heart that is caught on fire for you. I pray that you help us stay away from cultural Christianity and just have an unwavering devotion to you and you alone. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Help us to live with confidence. Help us to live with that come what may attitude that nothing else in this world matters in comparison to you. Help us, Lord to value you and to tear down all of our idols, to tear down the things that get in the way of you. And help us to be a church that is an outpost of heaven, that people can see us and want to be a part of this amazing community of love. And Lord, I I pray that we don't experience the persecution like what our brothers and sisters in North Korea are going through. And I pray that you be with them that you encourage them and strengthen them in this time and all of those who are persecuted around the world because they bear your name. And Lord, I pray that you help us to live lives worthy of it. Help us to live lives worthy of your name. Help us to live boldly and unapologetically for you. And we pray this in Christ's holy name, amen.